the increasing desire of folks to have the food they want safely at the times they want and the places they want has put huge demands on the cold chain. We think this technology, as we continue to expand in the cold chain, is going to end up being from farm to fork. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we're talking about thermal energy storage, finding ways to keep things cool by removing the unwanted heat. I'm a huge fan of energy storage and first discussed a technology similar to today back in episode 30. That company was Ice Energy. They had a device they called an ice bear that would make ice during the hours electricity demand was lowest and provide chill air instead of using the air compressor on an HVAC unit. That was early 2018. About two years later, the company went under. I hated when I heard this, but the problem was their model was built almost entirely on the proposition that the storage was simply shifting energy load. Utilities bought these products for companies, not the companies themselves. And for these companies, the actual energy savings were tough to notice. My guest today has expanded on those original ideas and believes they have a solution that solves the challenges of that business proposition. First, they say the product improves energy efficiency, about 25%. That savings customers can see. These products are also focused on the refrigeration and freezing business sector, not air conditioning for commercial buildings per se. This industry has its own special needs. They use a lot of energy, the most per cubic foot of any other sector behind lighting and HVAC. Cold food also needs stable temperatures. Too much variation from, say, forklifts and pallets moving through the warehouse and you start to see freezer burn. The solution my guest developed looks a lot like those ice packs you stick in your ice cooler at home. They sit on racks high above the warehouse floor. There's no moving parts. So what's so special about that? I even wondered myself. These modules, as they're called, contain a phase-changing material made of hydrated salts. They absorb heat and give off cold, according to my guest. Combined with software tied to the existing refrigeration equipment, they can run this equipment full out for a few hours and then shut off entirely, and then let these modules do the work. The result is the ability to use less energy, regulate temperature better, and yes, even shift load on the grid. I'm a huge fan of energy storage, especially technologies beyond what we're familiar with, and while this type of storage doesn't store electrons per se, it has the potential to save considerable amounts of energy for a growing and hungry population. My guest today is James Bell, president and CEO of Viking Cold Solutions. The technology I described was originally designed to keep temperatures on shipping containers consistent, which you can imagine would be tough to do. In 2011, Viking was formed and expanded into the cold storage warehouse sector. Following an expansion and new investment, the company moved to Houston. James joined the company in 2014. We talked a lot about the legacy of Ice Energy and how that informs Viking's decisions. As someone who's dabbled on the business development side, I'm always fascinated by how companies close the deal on technologies like this that are unique in so many ways. I hope you enjoy my conversation with James Bell. We're here with 
James Bell, president and CEO of Viking Cold Solutions. And James, just right off the top, refrigeration and freezing requires considerable amounts of power, right? And looks to me like you're hoping to solve that. You're absolutely right, Jay. Our sustainability technology addresses this load, which on a cubic foot basis is the most intense load on the grid. And by overall kilowatt hour usage is the third highest load after lighting and HVAC. So keeping things cold and fresh in the cold chain consumes over $40 billion worth of energy a year. I was interested to talk to you because a few years ago, I interviewed Ice Energy, who are sadly no longer in business. Their solution was to make ice for HVAC units during off-peak hours. So what are you doing here to help offset the load that's involved in something like that? Uh, It's a great question. And we're really familiar with the Ice Energy and Ice Bear model. They were kind of pioneers of working with utilities to try and address big problems. Their challenge, of course, was very few people want a big ice maker up on top of their commercial building, particularly when it's just bought by someone else and owned by someone else. We learned, I think, from their, shall we say, challenges. And our technology in particular is non-mechanical. It's also not parasitic. It's a sustainability. So we actually save kilowatt hours in addition to being able to shift massive amounts of load. And the technology was born in transportation, as I think you know. Then the applications were done over to infrastructure where the power meter ran all the time. And there is an application in both commercial HV and in domestic applications. So a wide variety. And fundamentally, what we do is we use phase change material to store energy And we dispatch that energy in the form of refrigeration or cold whenever our clients need it. You could think of it as a cold battery. The term of art is thermal energy storage inside of phase change material. Right. And I've noticed these in your videos. Looks like those ice packs that you would put in your coolers. Exactly. A super advanced form of that. So we like to think of our technology as the smarter, the Internet of Things version of that. Whereas someone might have like a gel pack in a cooler or something, which is kind of a one way trip. We're constantly storing and giving off energy as needed for both the grid and the client. Because we use cloud-based algorithms that do a digital twin of the facility in the cloud, we're able to optimize all the refrigeration equipment, which is where you get the efficiency from, and we're able to store massive amounts of energy in a facility you can store up to a few megawatts. And then you can dispatch that energy when it's needed and when the grid is under pressure You could come off the grid with the refrigeration equipment, thus avoiding the peak demand on the grid, avoiding peak charges for the client, avoiding demand charges, and generally providing greater sustainability. And so what's happening? These cooling units, and what are they called? We call them modules. The easy way to think about it, the thermal energy storage itself looks like almost a radiator design because we're using the existing equipment in the air transfer to put in and take out the heat. So it looks like a big heat sink, and it fundamentally operates as a heat sink where we consolidate and store that energy. It absorbs heat, and then it gives off cold. The technology is made of hydrated salts inside of sealed containers, so there's nothing circulating, nothing mechanical. And when you look up there, it kind of looks like there are a number of bottles that are all kind of connected by infrastructure, but there's no liquids that are moving around in solution. We're just taking advantage of that freeze-thaw cycle that's been working for billions of years. Are the pipes that connect the modules, are they freezing the modules? No, they are just simple support network. So we take up no additional real estate. The thermal energy storage sits up high in the room because that's where the heat likes to go. Heat rises, cold falls. We just take advantage of the basic rules of thermodynamics that when the heat enters the room, infiltrated heat either through the walls or from additional product or food coming in or say a forklift coming in or a human being, instead of that heat going to the food, it gets absorbed by the thermal energy 
energy storage, the modules. We just use the existing refrigeration equipment. We just use it more efficiently. The airflow that circulates is what's transferring that heat to and from the thermal energy storage. And then we remove that heat the most efficient way that we can utilizing the existing refrigeration equipment. So we run the compressors fully loaded. We also run them at their maximum, what's called delta T, which refers to the split in temperature between the intake and the output. And that's where equipment and refrigeration runs the most efficiently. Additionally, we try and run the equipment at night as often as possible, because as you know, refrigeration equipment and HVAC, if it's run at night, works much more efficiently. The big goal for ICE Energy is they wanted to simply shift load from off-peak hours. Their clients really weren't the facilities themselves. They were utilities, if I recall. What you're doing is your client is these facilities. They are able to shift load if they want to by running the coolers during those off-peak hours, and then the modules do the heavy lifting during the peak hours. Is that how we would think of it? Fundamentally, Jay, but we have the added advantage. Not only can we shift load, but since we're providing efficiency overall, generally around 25% efficiency, we waterfall their overall demand down. So they're using less kilowatt hours. And when we use those less kilowatt hours is critical because if you use them during the highest demand times, it serves both the utility and it serves the client. So therefore, we actually generally have several stakeholders at the table. All of us are stakeholders because we want to do more with less, less energy usage, less greenhouse gas. The utility has the advantage of they're able to basically target their high demand hours for our technology. And then obviously the client gets a lower overall energy bill. They get better quality product. They get the flexibility of being able to change their operational schedule depending on what they're doing inside the facility or what their tariff schedule is. They also get resiliency in the form of thermal energy storage backup. The facility can go several days with no power as long as they have thermal energy storage installed. Right. And James, maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. The client is usually for you always the facility and not a utility. It can be both. And in fact, some ways we're in a multi-level transaction in that there are benefits to our technology in front of the meter, which obviously would benefit the grid and benefit the client. Then there are lots of benefits behind the meter. We're kind of a unique technology in that we sit behind the meter, but we affect things in front of the meter. We've worked with utilities and even sold our systems to utilities for clients before. In those cases, it's that the utility wanted to do an avoided cost project or they had specific limitations on either equipment or they were looking for, say, permanent load shift. And then, of course, we can do the same type of demand response that a lot of the larger companies do that provide DR services. We partner in multiple different ways. And to us, it's whatever provides the greatest service to our client, because ultimately it has to work for the host client, which is the cold storage operator. Sure. And let's talk about what the needs of these clients are that's really making the sale. And look, I've worked in sales before, did a lot of it when I was in oil and gas, and I'm great at getting in the meeting of terrible at closing. So for someone who's probably a little bit more successful than that than me, what are their main concerns? Is it the overall energy efficiency? Is it more reliable refrigeration, if you will? What's really making the sale in a lot of these cases? Great question. It depends on the client, because obviously we work with large grocery store chains. We work with third-party logistics company. We work with food manufacturers. We work with food service companies. Each of them has a slightly different need. Ultimately, they're all using refrigeration or low temperature storage, or they're making something that's temperature controlled. So in any case, temperature control is kind of paramount, and that needs to be the focus. But kind of in general order, they obviously all want to protect their food. So that temperature control piece is key, and we help protect the food better by absorbing the heat and managing the temperature. 
researchers. And then, of course, they would like sustainability that provides a return on that investment. They are looking to reduce their expenses in the form of how much they're paying for energy and reduce their impact on the environment. And then we mentioned the resiliency. So the priorities can be different. Fortunately, the technology can serve a lot of those needs. Sure. Let's get into a little bit of the business of refrigeration. And this is something that I don't think the public is really aware of. Why are microthawing and crystals important to understand? I think everyone, particularly in this age of COVID, has become much, much more aware of the global cold chain and the cold chain as it pertains to keeping things safe at temperature. And the increasing desire of folks to have the food they want safely at the times they want and the places they want has put huge demands on the cold chain and spurred a lot of growth and investment in that area. So when you talk about the crystallization, it's a simple fact of chemistry and of thermodynamics that when you freeze something, crystals form inside of it in the water crystals. Some of those are frozen and some of them are not. The more fluctuations in temperature you have, the more micro thawing and micro freezing there are. And what that does is it breaks down the cellular structure of the food. Now, if you keep it at exactly the same temperature, that's the ideal. The more you fluctuate that temperature up and down, the more micro thawing and micro freezing you get and the more frankly like freezer burn that you get of that particular product and you destroy its quality over time that's something our technology definitely helps alleviate yeah the website also mentioned container ships moving things back and forth in transit like you mentioned i would assume that variation in temperature for shipping in cases like that have to be all over the map right that was the original business case and what started the technology the original patent and the original business business was one of our founder and now chairman, his company was a shipping and cold storage company. The technology didn't come from a national laboratory or a university, and it tried to find a problem it could solve. It came from a problem that a business owner had that he needed to solve, and he did. By installing thermal energy storage in containers, instead of the food changing temperature, the thermal energy storage did. It's just exactly the same idea as doing maybe a Yeti cooler with the best and most intelligent thermal packs inside of it, because in that way, Way, your food doesn't change temperature, those gel packs do. He just took that to the next level and did it as a company and then started shifting the technology over into the warehouses at each end of the cold chain, which is where we entered the picture. And now everyone's recognized the value of having that ability to absorb that heat instead of the food everywhere from convenience stores to grocery stores to even out in the field. We think this technology, as we continue to expand in the cold chain, is going to end up being from farm to fork. I'm just thinking a little outside the box here. What about homes? What about businesses? Are there ways that this kind of technology could be useful for temperature control in places like that? Absolutely. And a lot of people do this automatically by including their gel packs in their own freezers in their home refrigerator freezer. But in terms of how we can put it into existing equipment, our technology does have application inside of domestic refrigerator freezers, as well as reach-ins, walk-ins, things like that. We license the technology as well as install it in kits particularly where resiliency and sustainability are really key. We've done a lot of food banks. It's one of the ways we pay the business forward. And then, of course, we have clients all over the nation, and we're expanding into Canada and Mexico very, very quickly. And then it also says you're integrating with solar installation. So how's that configured? One of the things that we discovered in a San Diego gas and electric installation that we did at the San Diego Food Bank, they had a solar installation on the roof that they had particularly large set of 
res. As you probably know, for a while there, you could sell back that power at retail rates called net metering. Net metering had gone away in Southern California, so they were only getting pennies back on the energy that they were producing from their solar array. We installed a thermal energy storage system, oversized it a bit. We store the excess solar energy during the day, and at night, we use the stored energy inside of their facility to keep the food cold, and we essentially took a commercial freezer completely off the grid. It had never been done before. We cut their cost really, really substantively and used their renewable asset in the form of that solar as the generation device of the energy and our energy storage behind it. Our technology and our storage is about 1 20th of the cost of lithium ion batteries. And of course, we have an indefinite life that lasts over 20 years. And we have a levelized cost of energy of less than two cents per kilowatt hour. Very cool. Anything else you'd like to add? Well, I think the one thing for people to understand is that as people's desire around the world for fresh foods, for a variety of different foods grows, the intensity on the grid of this type of demand is going to grow. And we're all focused, I think, on doing more with less and being more sustainable. So we're going to have to use technology to better address the demands for energy and the demands for fresh and quality food. But what we encourage people to do is look in their own areas for ways they can be more sustainable. And if they have a low temperature application, whether it's ice cream or any other type of food um, that they should think about how they could incorporate thermal energy storage into what they're doing. We're going to be doing it in everything from their own refrigerator freezers all the way up to the great big massive distribution warehouses of the biggest companies providing food in the world. All right, James, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Natural gas is going to have to fill the gap for the next 20 to 30 years as we try to transition ourselves to more sustainable areas. It's obviously many times less carbon intensive than coal, and we have massive amounts of it. So I think it's definitely the energy source of the future for the next 15 to 20 years. Crude oil. Going to have to be part of the mix because there's many things that run on it. And obviously, over time, it becomes less a part of the mix, but still very much here to stay. Nuclear. One of the great original forms of renewable energy and obviously very environmentally friendly and definitely part of the future. Coal. And I'll caveat with carbon capture. People are investing in carbon capture. It's the only way that coal even partially makes sense anymore from a standpoint of carbon intensity. If they can commercialize some of those technologies, coal maybe has a little bit more of a lease on life, but people are closing those plants every day. So I think it's time has come and gone. Wind. Very optimistic about wind, although there are quite a few challenges to it in terms of both siting and operation and the resiliency of the equipment over time, but a nice part of the mix. Solar. Love solar gets less expensive and more deployed every day. I think it's a huge part of our future and the storage medium that goes along with it, the long-term heavy duration type of storage, which is a place that we obviously play, is going to make that really viable, particularly because it goes away at night. Biofuels. Biofuels have come up quite a bit. We've been watching those and looking at some of the technologies behind them. So far, no one's been able to do those really at scale, but we're optimistic that they will be part of the energy mix of the future. Hydroelectric. A great, very useful and green long-term energy source. Obviously, some challenges there with some variability based upon both weather and the fact that I think we're, water is going to be a scarcer and scarcer resource going forward. Geothermal. Geothermal is a place that obviously we've gained energy over time. It's very kind of site-specific and it's very capital-intensive to go after, but it has a place in certain areas and certain applications. A lot of systems have been installed, at, usually at larger applications, and it has a place, but but it's a niche technology. Energy storage. 
You guys. And, you know, battery, we don't store and give off electrons. We store and give off joules and a kilowatt hour in and out in the form of a BTU. But we are part of the energy storage mix, just like a battery is. Energy storage is absolutely essential part of the future. We have to figure that out to make wind and solar make sense. Electric vehicles. We know transportation is obviously very carbon intensive, puts off a lot of GHGs. Energy efficiency. As you said, energy efficiency is a hard sell simply because preventing a negative sometimes is a difficult thing to get across. And uh, obviously, you have to prove yourself every day, which is what we do. Energy efficiency is a key part of the future because your best dollar earned is a dollar saved. So whether this stretches from LEDs to better compressors to technology like ours, energy efficiency, I think, is going to be more and more of a priority for groups as they focus on places that they're now wasting energy and they should be saving it. And then finally, fusion power. I think there's going to be technologies like these and many others that we can't even dream of yet that are going to appear in the next 20 to 30 years to try and get us towards this more carbon neutral goal that everyone's professing by. We're definitely going to have to have all of the above from your lightning round because all of these things are still going to be in the mix somewhere, somehow. And the question is, how do we control and manage all these? Which is why I think cloud management like our company does and many others is going to be key because because what used to be a hub and spoke system of just energy coming one direction from a generation source down to a user is obviously going to be very, very dynamic going forward. So coordinating that and controlling it is going to be the new challenge for utilities. And then obviously making that both economic and resilient are challenges that we're all facing. I don't have a particular view on fusion power itself. I'm just really optimistic about technology and innovation to address the challenges that we have now and over the next 30 years. All right, James Bell, Viking Cold Solutions, thank you so much for your time. Jay, really enjoyed the time today and look forward to speaking to you again soon about our technologies. We continue to expand into the cold chain and provide sustainability, resiliency, and quality to our clients. That was James Bell, president and CEO of Viking Cold Solutions, a thermal energy storage company based in Houston. Paul Robbins, the founder, was the guy who invented the technology to originally address the shipping container issue. He served as chairman since the company's first inception in 2009. I want to thank James for his time, as well as Devin Yazzie and Mackenzie Cord at Trevi Communications for setting this up. Always great to work with the team over there. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram and Parler at host energy and twitter at host energy cast all guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release so far no complaints be sure to leave us a positive review on itunes that gets the word out music was produced by sean stroop at stroop loops that wraps up episode 114 be sure to join us next week when we explore how one of the most fuel intensive and noisy equipment on frack sites is going electric and quiet until then i'm jay downhower we'll see you next time 